0: Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK. Work together, win together.
1: Welcome to the podcast series on conservation agriculture in the Overberg of the Western Cape. My name is Andrew Ardington and I'm from the Regenerative Agriculture Association of Southern Africa and I will be the host of this series. My co-host is Hank De Beer. For more than 30 years, Henk has worked for SSK, where he ended up as the Chief Operations Officer. He has borne witness to the changes that conservation agriculture has brought to the entire Overberg region. We will chat to him about the origins of no-till and how that developed into what is today conservation agriculture. Henk, when did you start working in Swellenda?
0: Thank you, Andrew. About 34 years ago, in 1989, I started at SSK Central State Co-op as an agricultural economist. And Then, is, as you said, retired. I think of it as declared an in Innings as CEO in December last year.
1: Well, you haven't really declared because here yeah, you are batting for the region once again, but we'll get back to that later. What was Swillendam like? I spent a bit of time there now in the last five or six years and so I know the area well now, but what was the town of Swillendam like when you arrived there all those years ago?
0: Small town and SSK, the company I worked for, was actually Swellendam Heidelberg Agricultural Cooperative. Very small, very confined to that area, very diverse farming activities. Grain production, I would say, was highly risky, low yields, a difficult farming era, I would say, in that time. So
1: things have changed significantly on the agricultural side. But sticking to yourself, your first job, you said, was as an agricultural economist. Can you just tell us about what you were doing in the area and, and what the process was like and what you learnt, and where
0: things went? yeah 1989 was actually a very difficult time when i arrived there as i said farmers had huge debts because of grain production grain farming that was difficult with low rainfall low yields high cost and there was a lot of debt and i think my focus at that stage was the consolidation of debts credit applications arrangements with financial institutions and all those actions trying to save the farmers and keep the farmers on their farms, which is a very big focus of SSK up to today.
1: So your personal work was as an agricultural economist, so very involved in that economic side of things. And then in your journey, did you ever leave agricultural economics and move into management, or what was your journey through those 34
0: years? No, I moved to different positions in the company. At one stage, I was the credit manager. At one stage I was the head of the grain silo department but agricultural economics always stays a part of it and it is something that you can take through and use in every job description it will fit in and as I said I ended up as the chief operation officer responsible for the retail mechanization grain storage and feed production departments of SSK.
1: In your time there, what was the biggest change that happened in terms of agricultural production?
0: I think I saw the area changing from a very high-risk, low-yield and low-profit farming area to the relative stable grain production area with, I would say, average to good yields that it is today. It's a huge change from that, that days to today. I think if we can compare to the Swartland, for example, at that stage, the Swartland was the main focus and the prime grain production area in the Western Cape. I think it changed a little bit, and one could almost say that the Southern Cape is a little bit more stable than the Western Cape these days or than the Swartland these days. Obviously, there are many other factors that play the role cultural development, technology. Precision farming, climate obviously changed a little bit, but overall conservation farming that started with conservation tillage at that stage, 1980s, changed the prospects of the Southern Cape in a huge way. In the process, it changed the prospects for the Southern Cape community and economics as well. And that's the story I want to tell. That's the legacy of the pioneers that started that whole process that I want to tell in this series.
1: Great. That's going to be an amazing story for all of us to hear, and I look forward to it unfolding. I know a little bit about it, but I was not here at that time. I was young and in KwaZulu-Natal. But do you remember first hearing and seeing No-Tilt when
0: it arrived here? Actually, I didn't take that much note of it at that stage because it wasn't my focus. But I can remember Jack Heumann and, as we call it in that area, the revolution. He started with no-till and conservation tillage and progressively that actions that he took included other farmers and in the end we are today, we are an area that I would say 90 plus percent of the farmers do conservation tillage and obviously then conservation farming. You
1: know today conservation agriculture is a defined entity. The Food and Agriculture Organization has a definition of it, three pillars. First of all, minimum disturbance, then a rotation, and then leaving residue behind in the field. Do you remember that change, that sort of formalization coming in, or was it just a gradual process as different farmers carried out different practices?
0: It was a gradual process. To my knowledge, Jack Mann from the Edelberg district started with the first tillage actions in early 90s. And he was motivated by the Landsberg floods in 1981. Heavy rains had also reached the Heidelberg area and Jack noticed that his recently ploughed fields were stripped of topsoil as his other unploughed fields didn't have a problem. And that motivated him to start experimenting with less tillage ending with no tillage because of erosion.
1: So later in the series, we'll talk to Jack Heumann's son. Jack Heumann is sadly no longer with us. But could you just give us your brief version of the legend you heard?
0: Yeah, Jack started, as I said, in the early 1980s. That Landsberg flooding with the erosion that he noticed triggered the whole process. So Jack stopped ploughing and he took the first steps towards a road of conservation tillage and conservation farming. Jack's son Jacobus, as you mentioned, is still farming on the same farm as in the Heidelberg district and also follow the same principles of conservation farming. Jacobus told us that his father in those early days lied in his bed listening to other farmers plowing their fields after the first rain and how guilty he felt and how unsure he felt if he was doing the right thing. And obviously the other farmers also questioned his action. What was he doing? totally against the grain, totally against the concepts of the time. And I think they were all expecting him to fail. And then afterwards, other pioneers like Peter Goldeneus and later Sidi de Tui followed him and they went to Australia, had a look, see what's going on there. And then the whole thing sort of kick-started from there.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate enough yesterday to be on the farm of Heinrich Schoenfeld. He was a friend of Jack Humans, and he actually accompanied him on that first trip to Australia. And he tells a pretty harrowing story of those early years and how Jack convinced him that he had to sell all of his equipment and buy specialist equipment that would work on this new idea of theirs. And indeed, I think those early pioneers to whom we owe so much, they had many sleepless nights staring at their ceilings and wondering where the school fees were going to come from and various other bills that they had to pay. So from those early days, it grew and grew across the region and you must have noticed this at SSK especially in
0: ultimately in the economics department. No definitely as you said the early days was challenging and especially if I may go one step back. A suitable plant is to plant through that leftover material, the straw, the mulch on the fields was a huge problem and that as far as I can recall or know led to that Australian visit that we spoke about, and then they saw the houseplough that the Australians used, and that was the first plant that they imported, and that sort of led to the second wave of conservation farming pioneers. So a huge problem or a huge challenge was the finance to say, as you rightly said, to sell all their ploughs and small tractors and to start investing in planters and bigger tractors and crop sprayers and equip their combines with fine chopping and spreading instruments at the back to spread the straw all those actions and changes cost a lot of money and that was a huge leap in the dark for farmers at that stage and also for us at SSK to finance that so we had to buy in and support that concept or not and luckily the powers that stage decided to support the concept and finance farmers in that regard.
1: And today we have a fairly wide range of no-till planters available to the farmers and they of course are always the favorite brands that different farmers have and the competitions and jokes that come around those. But do you remember any specific evolutions along those and you know each of these farmers seems to make their own little variations and adaptations on these devices. Do you remember any significant changes that also spread quickly across the
0: industry? Yeah, I remember, obviously, the Ausblau, which is the Australian product, and then a South Africa farmer, one of the Willemse brothers of Albertina Renus Willemse, started copying that product and made it locally. It's called a DBX planter, and that, I think, helped a lot to supply enough planters in the area and districts. And as you said today, there are many different planters with different advantages and disadvantages, obviously, but there are many other adaptions i think the tillage and right specific equipment for each farm because each farm different as you know each area is different than you know and in our area the southern cape you do get very little topsoil you do get a lot of stones in certain areas and they had to adapt to a situation one solution didn't fit all and i think jack and his brother also started experimenting making different tines To suit the specific areas situation and to work in that difficult soil situations that they had. So the times was a very important issue at that stage and I suppose today as well.
1: So all across the world the initial no-till revolution was inspired by visible surface erosion. But then there were other aspects that started to come in that motivated other changes that happened around the no-till which ultimately led to the sort of formalization of the conservation agriculture practice. And we'll discuss more of those things as we go. But I think one of the things that has driven the adoption of no-till and conservation agriculture in the wheat region, and if you look at it in terms of the whole of the country, recently a study was done by the FAO and they said that there was an 80% adoption in the Cape, but parts of the maize regions were below 10% in their adoption of conservation agricultural practices. And one of the things that farmers always tell me about, aside from their rocks and how many rocks they're farming with, it's about moisture and how to retain moisture in the soil. Can you say anything to that?
0: Yeah, as you rightly said, I think that's the most important advantage that came out of this whole exercise of conservation tillage erosion is one thing but i think we moved past and moisture preservation is number one that's the focus of the southern capes farmers to preserve moisture by working less in the soil by keeping the mulch as much as possible on the soil keep the soil cool keep the soil structure and the soil texture as good as possible so moisture preservation is number one and with the southern cape high percentage of summer rainfall, I would say 40 to 50% sometimes summer rainfall, it's very important to keep that moisture, carry it over from the summer to the winter. And that also allows farmers to start planting, not waiting for at least 25 millimeters of rain. They can start at the right date, plant doesn't matter what the rainfall was at that stage. They had leftover moisture in the soil, They could start their planting on time and the whole management process was done on the right time during the right months of the season because of the advantages of moisture preservation.
1: Was it crop rotation or was it the saving of the residues that came first, of not burning off residues and of not taking them all off for livestock feed, leaving some on the field as protection and food for the soil so to speak?
0: Yeah, I would think the carryover of the material, the leftover of the previous season, that was first, but in many ways simultaneously as well. And crop rotation is these days 100% part of the whole management practice. So I'd say very much equal in terms of first or second and in terms of importance. These days farmers in our area do five years of cash crop, wheat, wheat, barley canola oats and then five years most of the times lucerne which is then the cover crop for give or take five year period but cover crops and crop rotation a selection of a crop isn't made anymore on the economic value of the crop it's just as important if not more so that it fits into your crop rotation system and then you decide what should be the crop for that specific land for the next season. Should it be wheat, should it be barley, should it be canola, if you want to control your grasses for example, or if you should go into your five year lucerne cycle. So with these
1: rotations and the break by many farmers of wheat on wheat production, and the advantages specifically around soil pathogens and weed control that those bring, we got the rise of the canola industry in South Africa and those very beautiful yellow fields that the Overberg likes to advertise itself with. You must remember that sort of taking place and the growth of the yellow patches across the countryside. Can you talk a little bit to that?
0: As many other things, there are different versions of that story. Who started it? And who had <laughs> the first canola seeds? There are a few guys that claim that situation for themselves, but yeah. I remember the first experiments, that didn't went too well. And I think most of you know that Sol, the company that was at that stage, started by SSK to extract the oil from the canola seeds. That didn't went well initially as well before they sorted out the technical issues. But yeah, I remember the start and I think the biggest problem until recently was the fact that they didn't get the yields that everybody expected. The average yields until very recently was one and a half tons a hectare. And I would say only in the last five years things changed. And now two to two and a half tons a hectare is more the norm than anything else. And with the price of give or take 11,000 rand a ton, you can think what huge difference that makes in the economics of the whole crop rotation and production of canola. These days, the production of canola is increasing by huge, percentage every year the biggest problems i think these days is the availability of seed yeah we hear that
1: a fair amount from farmers and and also the availability of new varietals it's a sore point for many farmers
0: (laughs) yeah variety is one thing i think more so the logistics to get the seeds here in time from canada or south america or australia to get the seeds here in time and to get the right amount of seeds because you have to plan two years ahead to get the right cultivars. As you know, it's not an easy situation to plan for because things change in 24 months. Yeah,
1: seeds are becoming a serious problem, but there needs to be some collective action on. So could you, with some degree of confidence, say that the evolution of conservation tillage into conservation agriculture and the adoption of that across the Oberberg region has really significantly impacted upon the economy of the whole area and stabilized it and created the capacity for the addition of products from the area like Southern Oil and Erica Mills etc etc.
0: Definitely one could argue there are many other factors including cultivars, including maybe subtle changes in rainfall or climate technology changes and whatever but i am very certain that conservation tillage conservation farming is the one big change that led to a very unstable a very high risk rain production area to what we have today a very stable area with a very good average yearly yield with good return on investment And the Southern Cape, I would think these days are seen as a prime grain production area in South Africa. Even with the very scarce, and I would say less than average resources that the area has, the area doesn't have very good soil, low rainfall, very warm summers, not very cold winters. But in spite of that, we made huge steps forward and a lot of farmers these days, as you know, stopped the sheep and dairy farms and focus on grain production in total, because that is the most profitable enterprise and they are then allowed to focus on grain production and use all their available resources to focus on production of grain.
1: Yeah, we'll have to bring in at a later stage livestock into all of it and where that goes in the future and how we work with that. But... Coming now to the future, you know, a big question mark around that everyone doesn't have the answers to and we all have lots of questions to is climate and the future variability that this might bring into our areas. You know, reduction in overall rain, rain coming in larger, less frequent events, etc., and you know, I think the work done on the conservation agriculture development in the wheat region is putting the region in a fairly good position to work forward with those problems that we are now going to have to add to our list of problems. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Just to confirm, we had on some farms 100 millimetres or less rain during the growth season of winter grain. And in spite of that, we had an average yield this last year. That is wonderful but I must say that the previous year's summer rainfall was quite high and with the system that we have and the carryover of the moisture from the previous high summer rainfall to this year probably helped a lot that won't happen every year and you won't be able to produce average yield with 100 millimeters of rain each and every year although the risk is that farmers may think so and that farmers may tend to risk a little bit too much on the system and we all know Given input costs, what the risks are, and how big the impact of a crop failure can be in any district, and especially in ours. So, that's a little bit of a concern. I think everybody in the business of financing knows that and are a little bit worried about that. And it leaves the big question of what is next, what does the future hold, and what should be the next big step for conservation farming?
1: Yeah, that really is the big question. We have a great history here, and your life, your lived experience of being in the middle of it all and watching it change bears great testimony to that, but now we have to plan for the future. You know, for me, a major issue is energy. The cost of energy just rises, and let's leave Eskimo out of the conversation because otherwise it might go nasty, but just in terms of all energy, you know, whether that energy is the energy in your diesel or the energy in your fertilizer or the energy in your chemicals... Or the energy in harvesting feed for animals all of that energy is just going to get more and more expensive and i think that the pioneers of the future are going to have to focus on solving those problems to bring continued stability to the region
0: yeah we moved from a high diesel consumption exercise to a very lower diesel consumption exercise if we can only focus on diesel as you're right say now the next step is how do we address the herbicides and insecticides issue and the fertilizer issue especially for me i would like to see less or more environmentally friendly chemicals to use thereof the availability thereof i think that's essential the hopefully more crop options as well either cash or nitro fixing legumes in that five year resting period so, huge challenges lying ahead to uh, keep evolving and to keep up with all the challenges that nature brings.
1: Indeed. I was talking to a conservation agriculture farmer up in the Grünstadt region and he points out regularly that the only constant is change. And we're in trouble if we don't keep changing with change.
0: Yeah, if I might add on that one further development also in terms of change, is the development and quick evolving of technology and precision farming. That'll keep on coming. And obviously farmers need to take note of that and need to embrace that. But on the other hand, that'll cost a lot of money and that increases the risk. And unfortunately, from my personal perspective, that also will lead to bigger farming units to afford the new technology and equipment, obviously, which probably is the right thing in terms of economics. But in terms of social welfare and rural areas development, I would say not so much.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with you there. But before we go into that, just precision agriculture. Lots of listeners are probably not aware exactly of what that is. Can you just give a little description of what that entails and what it means and the pros and cons? I think you mentioned the biggest con, that being the cost of it.
0: (laughs) I'll try my best. Precision farming, I think that start with soil samples and the precision applying of fertilizer on specific square meter areas according to the needs of that specific area of soil. It also can flow over to your use of chemicals, herbicides specifically, on certain specific areas with control applying of the chemicals only where it is needed. At that specific area so less waste and then it moves on to the monitoring of your crops the yield and planning according to the potential of every hectare or square meter of soil on your farm measuring the soil and treating
1: each area that's different differently as you go along but as you said in order to do that you have to have a a clever tractor and a clever planter yeah, so there are so many things out there now. If you think back to those early days when Jack and Heinrich and others flew over to Australia and came back with an idea because that was all there was, there was nothing. Today, the farmers are almost facing the opposite problem. They've got a very wide array of choices and things to look at. And the other thing is that you're mentioning there is farmers going out of business and the consolidation of farms and farms coming into bigger areas. And that certainly does have... A negative impact upon the most importantly the municipality and the functioning of the towns etc people could say that it's good because it's becoming more and more efficient and therefore it's keeping this concept of keeping food prices down but then on the other side these
0: small towns suffer in this situation if I can interrupt you there I don't know if everybody knows living in cities the huge influence that the farming community has on a small town like Swellenheim for example You can see the changes almost immediately after a difficult or less than average crop. It is very noticeable in every little small town that farmers do struggle, and you can see that in their spending, and their spending is so important to the the whole growth of every town in the rural areas that it makes a huge impact, and you can see that. Luckily, we told a story now in Swellendam, The opposite happened, and the farming community was profitable, they developed and they grew. Everything went well, and one can see it in the development of the town. But things can change overnight, as we know.
1: Yeah, indeed they can, and there are many towns that I drive through in South Africa where this change has already happened, where the shrinking in the number of families farming has caused the town economics to really go south in a big way. Let's talk about the future of Henk De Beer. You said you had retired or hung up your boots, but here you are doing the series with Foodforms Ansi, creating not only these podcasts, but also a video series. Are you staying in Swellendam? Where's the future?
0: For the time being in Swellendam, although time will tell, anything exciting, anything new, anything challenging, I'll have a look at and yeah, I'm open to what the future holds. I took a few months in retirement, I had a rest, I had a a good cop clean, but what the future hold is a little bit unsure. But after 34 years, maybe it's good to be a little bit unsure and look at the future that's not quite known. So I can't tell you what the future hold, because I don't know, but I'm looking for any new project, anything exciting. I want to stay busy, I want to keep up, and as we all know, why stop and turn your body off? I don't think that'll work for me, and I don't think that'll work for anybody else.
1: Thank you very much for your time, Hank. I look forward to our future conversations as we interview other people involved in this story. And this really is a story. It's a human story. Agriculture often is a human story. We need to be reminded of these stories every now and again. And we need to be reminded of how important these pioneer farmers are in the evolution of agriculture. And I don't just mean conservation agriculture. Probably going back 12,000 years ago, it was always just a few individuals that took big risks that many other people subsequently benefited from. Whether that benefit was them not having to take those risks or being able to implement success at the end of that, yeah, I'm sure there were many failures along the way. But it appears that this risk taken by the pioneers of the late 80s was good for many more than just themselves.
0: Thank you, Andrew. No, I, I think it's a good story to tell. I think the legacy, as you mentioned, is very important. And also note that SSK, in collaboration with Food for Mozanzi is also filming a series during which farmers in the Southern Cape are visited on their farms and their conservation farming practices are discussed. Among others, the film crew visited Jacobus Himann, uh, the son of Jack as well as Peter Guldneuys CD2 and Dirk van Papendorp, and a few others. That series will be filmed over a period of 12 months, expected to be completed and ready for broadcast in September-August 2023, this year then, and it promises to be very interesting and provide lots of lessons learned and visual evidence of good conservation farming practices in the area. What a wonderful
1: discussion. Thank you, Hank, for your time and for your story. That brings us to the end of episode 1. In episode 2, we will be exploring the status of conservation agriculture in South Africa with Dr. Johann Strauss.
0: Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK and Food Firm Zanzi. If you are looking for a sustainable farming partner, then look no further than SSK. Visit SSK.co.za for more information.